We've been looking at Mark 12, November, December here, and we come now to this passage that often gets taught as if here is something from the law we can do. Uh, All we have to do is love. But I love the honesty of the Heidelberg Catechism on this. Consider questions three, four, and five of the 125 questions and answers that make up this particular catechism. Question three, how do you come to know your misery? Answer, the law of God tells me. Question four, what does God's law require of us? Answer, Christ teaches us this in summary, and they quote the Matthew version. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? Answer, no, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Jesus gave a summary in response to a scribe, another member of the Jewish religious hierarchy that he's been interacting with the past couple of weeks as we've been in this section of Mark 12. Jesus gives a summary of 613 commandments in the law of Moses, and we love summaries, he boils it down to two, which he merges together, one from Deuteronomy and the other from Leviticus, and they parallel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandments greater than these. One from Deuteronomy, the first one, the second one from Leviticus, He merges and pairs them. Now we know this passage. It's often cited shorthand for the main action of Christianity. What are we supposed to be about? Love God, love others. We've heard that answer over and over again. Many of us have given that answer. And it's true. But many people, including well-intentioned preachers, seem to assume this we can do. We just need to do it. Why aren't we doing this? How much clearer could Jesus be? Problem is, we hear him, but run into ourselves in our efforts. We trip over ourselves in this. As the drafters of the Heidelberg Catechism, published in 1563, realized, because everything in the law, everything in the law, including the great commandment here, shows us our inability Our futility, the law of God, back there in the first five books of our Old Testament, it shows us our misery even, the term the catechism uses, in that we are not naturally willing to give ourselves to the kind of ground connection loving God and loving neighbor require. In fact, left to ourselves, left to our own nature, It's worse than just unwillingness or negligence on our part. We have a tendency to hate God and hate our neighbors. The Heidelberg Catechism is exactly right. So I read this. Here in Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, Jesus' summary of the law's requirement, and I see I am really in trouble with God because I've loved the wrong things many times and loved the right things in the wrong ways, still do. On my best day, I fall short of God's call, even if my best is pretty good. Even if I do a pretty good job next 
Thursday of loving God and loving my neighbor, Jesus is the standard every day. And I do not do this as well as he does it. I never have and I never will. Which does not mean I have an excuse to just roll over and let it go. I can't do this. It's perfectly seated. So I won't. I won't even bother. No. I can do this to a point because Jesus resources me to love God and others through his word, through his spirit. But the revelation that's here in this particular passage is just because you can summarize God's ethical intentions for us doesn't mean you can meet them. In fact, the summary is even more depressing because you take 613 things, you boil them down to two, and we still can't do that. So we're in trouble. And this is not the only place where Jesus summarizes the law. If you went back to the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Jesus extended meditation on the Ten Commandments, which is another summary of the law. We find Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you know, God knows you inside out. You've never had a thought he's not read. You've never done a thing he's not seen. And he's seen our negligence too. And This is because he's omniscient, because he's omnipresent. So nothing is hidden from the one who made it all and, and sustains it all. How does the psalmist put it? Uh, Psalm 139. Have you read that one in a while? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. Behind and before, lay your hand upon me. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me, etc. and so on. But in that law summary, that is the Sermon on the Mount, summarizing the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, we say never committed murder Jesus says oh but God knows you've been angry enough to I've never committed adultery God knows every one of our lusts and so knowing this as we do why would we come to this passage in Mark 12 and think we can love as the law of God requires no this summary, as I was saying earlier, only makes our problem more painfully obvious. 613 commandments in the old covenant law of Moses. And if you just, even if you summarize the law of God down to two commandments merged into one, it is obvious to others around you, if not to yourself, that you don't even do the summary consistently. Note the alls. Verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The soul is, is, is the way of saying who I am in the presence of God is an image bearer. And with all your mind, your understanding, and with all your strength, does all leave any room to miss? I don't think it does. Let's take this today from, from two angles. First angle is the answer Jesus gives to the question asked of him. This passage is framed by question. See in verse 28, the scribe comes up, 
sees him interacting with the Sadducees, the Pharisees and Herodians before that, and asked him, verse 28, and then verse 34, no one dared ask him any more questions. So you've got this passage set off by the Q&A that Jesus has been engaging. So two angles. We'll look at the answer that Jesus gave to this question asked of him. And then we're going to look at the answer within the answer. First, the answer itself. We see it in verse 29 and on into verse 31. Love God with everything you are and love others as you love yourself. And so what's the problem? It's the way it's put. We can't miss on this. But we miss on this all the time in our experience. But the way it's put, you can't miss on this. Yet we do miss. When Jesus came to seek and to save, he never missed. And that's our hope. That is to say, in this particular context, Jesus never loved the wrong things. And he never loved the right things in the wrong ways. And that's why Jesus says to the scribe in verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a deep part of his preaching. And in fact, the kingdom of God comes first in the person of Jesus, who does show us how to love. Yes, Jesus shows us how to love. But if it was just that, a how-to from Jesus, you and I are still in despair because we cannot love like he loves, which is flawlessly and flawlessly is what God requires. That's why I've said to you many times, Jesus is never our example until he first becomes our Savior. As an example of the difference between my love and his, I, I can't love unconditionally. I aspire to it. I want to love unconditionally, especially those closest to me. But if you hurt me enough, I'll probably turn on you or at least cool toward you, probably avoid you. How different is God? He seems to have an infinite capacity to be hurt and not turn on those who hurt him, namely us. Take as an exhibit A, the father and the prodigal son story. Who can love the most reckless ingrate like that prodigal who in that story is the personification of unrighteousness and who can love the most uh, self-righteous ingrate that is the older brother you get unrighteousness and self-righteousness both in that story it's why it's it's why it's so well loved Jesus comes for both it's a parable about divine love only God can love unconditionally like that the rest of us can't pull that off. We go either overindulgent, we act like there's nothing to forgive, just love, just love, it's okay. Or we go self-protective. Self-protectiveness is its own evidence that we do love ourselves. You see how love for neighbor is predicated on our loving ourselves. Verse 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we all know that we love ourselves, not because we're narcissists, but because we protect and take care of ourselves. And yet, I don't think anybody in the room here would want to volunteer yourself to prove how strong your love can be by letting someone do their worst to you so then we can watch you shine. 
No, we, we living in this world as it is gives us a healthy distrust of ourselves. In this place, we can be hurt as well as hurt others. But we know it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to turn us against someone else, even someone who was once close to us. And we also know how easily we can avoid a variety of people we have no interest in until someone hangs this on us and says, well, you know, you're supposed to love your neighbor as you live yourself. Tell me something else that I'm supposed to do. You know, hang all that guilt on me and call that Christianity. You generally don't love anyone by trying to love them. Trying to feel a certain way about them. This isn't about feelings anyway. We default to that. But the call of God and the law of God. First five books of the Old Testament. You think the call of God was to feel warm about God? Feel warm about your neighbor. Feel the love for your neighbor. Feelings will inevitably be involved But it's not about feelings, it's about response. How I respond to God, how I respond to neighbor who is made in the image and likeness of God. Let's put it up against ourselves as a a for instance, how this works. How do I respond to myself when I have a desire, when I have a need, when I have a problem? I take care of it. I mean, assuming legitimate desires here. I take care of me. I seek a solution. I I seek a provision. Why? To love myself is to respond to my own needs and desires and problems to take care of me. We all do this. If you fed yourself this morning, if you popped a vitamin, if you cleaned up, gave thought to what you wear, buckled your seatbelt, you loved yourself doesn't matter if while you did all that you realized you're mad at yourself about something maybe you still took care of yourself this morning as every morning it's not narcissism it's basic love of self love your neighbors you love yourself love the Lord your God with all your heart it's more at the emotional structure of us the there's that dang whistle again Dana Phillips, I need some speech pathology help for this whistle that I've got. This came about. Shouldn't draw attention to it, but ah, but when I do, see that just, we just keep, keep going. All your mind, your understanding, all your soul, basically the, the human being before God, stamped and printed with his image, and your strength. Uh, vocation, everything that you give yourself to, all, all of your activities, all of this. So, so when we put all this there, you say, well, well, now God has no needs or problems. So how do I love him if he has no needs or problems? Well, he has desires. He has a will for us. Neighbors do have needs and problems and desires also. To love God and neighbor is not trying to feel a certain way about them, though feelings will inevitably involved. Yes, they, they will be. We're not trying to deny feelings, leave them out, cut them out. But loving God and neighbor is about responding to what God wants and neighbors need. The call of the law of God that Jesus summarizes here is to, is to not be so focused on myself This is what the law called us to. Don't be so focused on yourself, 
your own needs, your own desires, your own problems, responding to that all the time that you never submit yourself to God and respond to him and those he has placed around you for whom he cares as his image bearers. So that's the answer that Jesus gave the scribe. But there's also an answer within the answer. You see, the scribe here had already sensed, he sensed there was a core to the law of God, which he was under. Jesus is speaking here to people under the law, under the old covenant arrangement. The, the scribe, as we see his words here in verses 32 and 33, when he hears Jesus' answer and then basically repeats back to Jesus, uh, 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 attentive listening here, well said, teacher, this, this is true. He is genuine in his salute to Jesus here. This is not snide. The scribe has realized that the sacrificial system points to something beyond itself. He's on the trail. He's got the scent. He's realized that God is not interested in offerings themselves. Though the law is dominated by sacrifice and, and offering. But the scribe has realized in all of that that, that God is more interested in the one making the offering, the response of that one. See, offerings could be an empty exercise. The scribe knew his history of his people. Up until the present, the sacrifices were often a very empty exercise for people. There's got to be more involved. He senses it. There's got to be a bullseye on the target. What is it? Jesus says it's love. What you're sensing it's love. That's what the law boils down to. Loving God, loving neighbor as you love yourself. It's love. Makes perfect sense. Why? Because the essence of sin is love's disordered, loving the wrong things, loving the right things the wrong way. So it would make sure that it makes sense that God would go right to, to ground zero of the damage that we've done in saying that what he most wants from us is love. The scribe gets it. Love for God and neighbors at the core of what God wants. But then Jesus says to him, verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> Don't think you meet the requirement because you know the answer. There's an answer within the answer. Who can meet this requirement? If what the scribe says in confirming Jesus puts him near the kingdom, how do you get into it? We're only going to get in on the merits of one who can consistently without flaw give God what God wants. And that is to love God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength, and to love his neighbor as he loved himself. Again, the kingdom of God. See what he tells him in verse 34? You're not far from the kingdom of God. Now in the gospel of Mark, kingdom of God is a significant phrase. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Mark, you see this is what Jesus came preaching. Repent, his sermon. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Near in Jesus' person. That's what Jesus preached. And so if what the scribe says in confirming what Jesus said puts him near the kingdom... How do you get in? 
How do you get in it? We're only going to get in on the merits of one who can consistently, without flaw, love God with everything and love his neighbor as he loved himself. Jesus is the answer within the answer. I need him to do this for me. I need him to love God for me. I need him to love neighbor for me without flaw so that when I then give myself to it in following him, and I do, I don't check out on this, none of us should, but because Jesus went first, it means now this isn't something I have to live up to, it's something I get to live into. There's all the difference in the world between living up and living in in this context. If Jesus is just my example, then there's so much despair in that because I cannot live up to what he did. I know this because what he did was consistently flawless at every turn. But see, if Jesus is my Savior, then I get to live into this. And I could submit to him my broken attempts and my clumsy and conditional attempts at loving God and neighbor and even family and friends. And find he makes me want to press on even as I note considerable failures in this. But he's changing me as I keep submitting to him. You know, breaking news, sometimes neighbors are hard to love. (laughs) you've noticed this haven't you sometimes brothers and sisters in faith are hard to love and by the way the difference between loving neighbors and loving brothers and sisters in the church is you don't expect neighbors to love you back there's a reciprocal nature to the love that we are called to within the body outside of the body the love that we show to neighbors Don't expect that to necessarily come back to you. But you learn, you learn in walking with Jesus Christ that the only chance you really have at loving somebody who may be hard to love is by loving somebody else more. And the somebody else is Jesus. And you know that preaches well. The only chance you have at loving somebody who's hard to love is loving somebody else more. That preaches nice. But I don't want to suggest that it's easy to love Jesus, who is God. I wouldn't say that. It's easy to love him. I don't see him. He doesn't talk back to me when I talk to him. I admire him. I submit myself to him. I believe in him. I am eager for his return and rule. I do love him. But I wouldn't say it's easy to love Jesus. I will say it's possible to love neighbors, some of whom make it hard, by loving somebody else more, somebody else first. And in fact, you see the way he puts these commandments. In verse 29, he says the most important one, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The nature of God is established. And now we are to love this God who is entirely self-sufficient in his own being, meaning he doesn't need our love. But it's part of the desire construct of God. That's a marvel to consider that God would want our love. Doesn't need it. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Entirely self-sufficient in his own person. That word for one 
is a duality of nature. It's the same word that gets used in Genesis 2 about the two become one flesh. And so even there in Deuteronomy 6, where this is quoting from, you get a hint at the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because the word for one doesn't mean one singular. It means one of a combination. He's entirely, he's a community, a perfect community in his own, his own being. Three persons in one. He doesn't need us. But he wants us. He wants us. He wants us to know his love. He wants us to be in on his happiness and his joy. And even if life gets terrible and, and it's not good and you don't in, enjoy, uh, you're, you're, you're promised more than just this life. Which you don't look forward to as some sort of escape hatch, but as a fulfillment, as a consummation. We know just a little bit of what we're in on for here and now. Eye has not seen nor ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. Paul talked about that. There's some good stuff here, but when he says the first and greatest commandment, he's establishing this priority. In the Matthew version of this, the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. But even in loving God, God has to go first. And he does, in the person of God the Son, who loved God the Father unconditionally. And see, if that didn't happen, we would stay in our tendency to hate God and to hate neighbor, as the Heidelberg Catechism put it. If Jesus doesn't go first and make the way to loving God possible for me and for you, then we won't do it. The law of God put loving God at the core of itself and then rehearsed in concentric circles all the ways you won't and don't. And me too. Unless, unless, unless God himself does it for us. And that is really what the Christmas story is all about. God coming to do it for us. That's why it's a marvel. Jesus himself is the answer within the answer. If what the scribe says is in confirming Jesus, if what he says put him near the kingdom, <laughs> I want to know how to get in. We're only going to get in on the merits of the one who can consistently without flaw love God with all his heart, all his mind, all his soul, all his strength, and love his neighbor, you and me, as he loved himself. God goes first so that we can go after him, so we can go to him. He doesn't hang this on us. He invites us in to where he's gone before us and still goes. I could have spent all this sermon time making you feel guilty for how much you don't love people. Aren't you glad I didn't do that? Merry Christmas. That's a pulpit gift for you. All right? We know we're supposed to love. We get it. I could do a word study on heart and mind and soul, and we could just have a fascinating time. I could put on my little professor cap up here, and we could just go on and on through the language. It'd be really fun. But the best thing I know to tell you is that only Jesus Christ lived up to the standard of God. 
And so if you and I have a prayer and a hope, it's going to be found in him. You will give yourself to this. I will give myself to this. We do give ourselves to this, but it's in response to what he has gloriously and graciously and so much good done for us. And if you've never been moved by that, maybe this year, maybe this season becomes the time where it begins to really get into the motivational structures of who you are. And you begin to realize, man, what a Savior. It's not just something on the page or something in the bulletin or something we talk about in this room, but it's something that begins to grip the, the inner recesses of who you are. And you say, yes, yes, I want what he's offering me because he does all things well. Following Jesus is about learning how to live into God's ways because he's already lived up to them. And therefore, when we come to a passage about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I know I can't do that. I know there's a thousand ways I don't love my neighbor as I love myself. But I also know because I know Jesus and because I love him and because I trust him, I'm going to keep giving myself to the work this requires, grateful as I do that he's done the larger work so I don't have to. It's the best thing I can tell you. Well, let's stand and pray, and then Ken's going to lead us in a song that may not be familiar to everyone, so I think Ken's going to sing it through once for us so we get the gist of it, and then we'll sing it together. I'll start preaching longer sermons. It's 11.46. Start giving three points. What about that? Be like everybody else. Father, we're grateful that you care for us and that you have literally moved heaven and earth to show us. You didn't have to do anything that you did for us. You who are one who are totally self-sufficient within your own being. You didn't have to bring us in on this. And Lord, uh, help us to both not take ourselves so seriously, but also to, to never dismiss ourselves so lightly. You want something to do with us. Christmas rings with that truth. All the talk about the manger and the stable, is, it's just more marvelous that you would come this way. That you would inhabit our flesh at our most vulnerable. And you would allow men to scourge you and mock you and place you on a cross. But the cross wouldn't keep you. Because you didn't come from Nazareth. You came from beyond. And the law didn't just speak to its own properties. It spoke to something beyond itself. Which we today in Memphis are the recipients of 2,000 years later. And Lord, we get weary in waiting. And we get distracted and preoccupied in waiting for your return. But Christmas is a great time to zero in into second advent not just first. Because first Advent was the occasion to make promises. Promises that you still will fulfill. You have fulfilled the promises to redeem us and to keep us.
And now we await the promise to rescue and to renew all that we see that is wrong and off. Thank you, Lord, for your good grace to us, your kindnesses to us. They are manifold. And we're grateful that you call us to know you, that you want to have a relationship with us. Whatever impedes us, whether it's things we've been taught that need to be adjusted or things we've never been taught or maybe somebody even wandered in here today and don't even, doesn't know anything, help that one to understand. But help us all to understand if we came in here after decades of coming in here and we mail it in, Lord, arrest us in that and remove the blinders from our eyes and help us to see for the first time who you are and that what you've done for us is good and what you continue to do for us is even better. And what you will do for us is best of all, for we will get to see you. We don't have to encounter your judgment. We've already gotten it at the cross. And so we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for loving us with uh, everything you had and for putting us on the path to knowing you and to following you, our redemption. Thank you in Jesus' name.